I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's guest is Graham Duff, a prolific scriptwriter, director, producer, editor, and author who's created a wealth of distinctive work for TV, radio, stage, and publication, including the nightmare worlds of H.G. Wells, and he's acted in Doctor Who and the Harry Potter films. Graham Duff is presenting his lecture, Sublime Fragments, The Art of John Balance, at Psychoanalysis, Art and the Occult, held at Candid Arts Trust in London, 2016. If you'd like to follow along, there is a video of this on YouTube. Just search for our YouTube channel, Trapart Film, T-R-A-P-A-R-T, space, film, on YouTube. You can also find our channel through searching for the Rendering Unconscious podcast on YouTube or searching for my name. If you prefer Vimeo, we have a Vimeo channel as well. Trapart Film or Rendering Unconscious podcast on Vimeo. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Published by Trapart Books, 2019, and also available as an ebook through iBooks and Kindle. For more information, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T R A P A R T dot net. You may also visit my website, Dr. Vanessa Sinclair dot net, and the podcast website, Rendering Unconscious dot org. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P A T R E O N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. So, uh, John Balance, born Jeffrey Lawrence Burton in 1962, is best known as the vocalist and lyricist with the British experimental band Coil. Now, many musicians and bands would refer to themselves as uh, experimental, yet paradoxically, many of them employ a signature style. But John Balance and his partner in both life and Coil, Peter Christofferson, were relentless experimentalists. From 1982 until Balance's untimely death in 2004, Coyle repeatedly switched and flipped their modes of expression. From synth pop to atonal noise, from delicate string arrangements to acid house club tracks, to dronescapes, film soundtracks, ritual music, sequencer-driven cosmiche, 
industrial cacophony and beyond into the truly uncategorizable. Seldom was a group so unrestricted in the scope of its endeavours. Interestingly, in relation to Coyle's recordings, Balance was fond of saying, we made the studio sacred and then we blasphemed. That is to say, they created a restriction and then rebelled against it. Now, whilst the uh, sonic elements of their work may frequently have changed and evolved, Cole's lyrical concerns uh, remained fairly consistent. The cosmology of interest, which included hedonism, viewed as an heroic pursuit, life seen as a primal arena, the price of existence being a term of warfare, man at the mercy of elemental forces, the bestial being close to the celestial, um, the outsider as gifted visionary, death viewed as an integral part of human existence, and of course a fascination with magic and the occult in its various forms, with of course creativity itself seen as a magical act. Now, largely unknown to the outside world, uh, throughout Coyle's career, Balance was also privately, yet prolifically, producing a vast body of visual artworks. Works which were never intended to be exhibited, works which were never intended to be seen by anyone, except perhaps for a few close friends. Works which were kept, tucked away in notebooks, drawing pads, or green box files. Until 2014, when the first edition of the balanced monograph, Bright Lights and Cats With No Mouths, was published, very few people were even aware of the existence of these paintings and drawings. And it's clear that Balance himself didn't regard his artworks as worthy of much, if any, serious consideration. So because of the secretive nature of their creation, much of what I've got to say is opinion and speculation. With the exception of the materials used in the creation of these works and the dates that were created, there are very few facts about John Balance's artworks, and even the dates of some of the pieces are unknown. But one thing is for certain, in his visual artwork, Balance applied the same open-ended experimental approach which characterised Coyle's musical output. We can see this in terms of both the range of styles he employs and the variety of media he chooses to manifest his work. He switched freely between coloured pencil drawings, collages, watercolours, purely abstract paintings, cartoons, grotesque caricatures, surrealistic landscapes, and so on. Now, one possible reason for Balance's ability to leap from style to style, medium to medium, is the private nature of their creation. An artist's signature style is often their selling point, uh, so many visual artists will think long and hard before changing direction. But there was absolutely no public conception of Balance as a visual artist, so he was free to do whatever he wished. So this, incredibly stretched out version here, uh, is a piece called Wood Fury. It's from 1988. It's a strange creature composed of uh, citrus slices, chicken claws, and energy waves, and it's hovering uh, near a wooded area. There are stars and a crescent moon in the sky, uh, but it's also a bright blue sky. So it's almost as if this has been created uh, like one of those films from the 60s or 70s where they used day for night shooting. Um, and I think it's, it's one of his finest works. Can you change the, uh, change the time? So in combat, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> 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 so there's some smudges. Uh, that's actually a really beautiful piece of work. This is going to be a bit odd because I'm going to be showing you things that you can't really see, but then it is about the occult, so there we go. <laughs> 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 so, uh, I think it's best to do the highlight of the talk early. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this, is a, this is a purely abstract painting. 
Uh, we don't know the date of this one. Um, it's a soulful and brooding piece, believe me, uh, and it pays repeated study. You have to buy the book and have a look, frankly. Um, what Balance has done here is he's got thick pigment and scraped it across the surface of the paper. And um, if you could actually see this, it's sort of analogous with, with some of the abstract works of, of Gerhard Richter. Yeah, next one, please. Okay. Uh, this is uh, something very different. Again, this is a coloured pencil drawing from 1990. Uh, whilst the majority of Balance's works um, deploy uh, automatism and chance, this is clearly a planned piece uh, with a real delicacy and lightness of touch. This may be an imagined space, but more likely it's an actual garden which Balance either visited or, or knew well. Now this space might not fit in with the image we have of Balance as the wild, surrealistic visionary. But it shows that for Balance, the creative floodgates were always open, and rather than uh, simply trawling his subconscious, he was capable of engagement with visual reality. So as this range of um, third images shows, uh, Balance was an, an arch experimenter, unwilling to be pinned down to one mode of expression. But of course, by definition, not all experiments uh, will come off. Not everything Balance touched turned to gold. And I, I feel sure there are pieces included in the monograph that he would have felt a little bit awkward about being exposed to the public. And there are numerous occasions where his vision uh, clearly exceeded his technical abilities. Now often, a balance would experiment with mind-altering drugs and then draw or paint whilst under those influences. So sometimes this would produce startling results. But it's probably not too presumptuous to say that there are occasions when um, the chemical altered state of his mind would actually be curbing his technical abilities. <laughs> and without doubt, there are... There are uh, pieces in this monograph which could easily uh, and perhaps rightly uh, be dismissed as stone doodles. But equally, there are other pieces which could be just as easily dubbed stoned masterworks. And as one might expect, there are uh, uh, strong recurring themes. Death, demons, dogs, hybrid beasts, unknown gods, spirit worlds, whenever visions, the sun, the moon, and so on. Personal obsessions with universal uh, resonance. And one of the key elements to many of Balance's works is eroticism and the manifestation of sexual energy. Look at the next one. Uh, now, this, believe me, is a really beautiful uh, piece, of, piece of work. Um, now, Balance's oeuvre can sometimes feel like quite a cock-heavy one. Um, again, this should come as no surprise because the cursory glance at the song titles and lyrics that Balance composed for Coyle uh, quickly reveal a fascination with erotic desire, sexual energy and sensual overload. Coyle were, after all, uh, dedicated uh, explorers of the altered state and sexual excitation and orgasm are amongst life's greatest uh, altered states. Now this is a piece called Horse, drawn in 1988 um, in ink and coloured crayons. Crayons, not, not, a, not a, a, a medium which is used very often by artists. Um, a red horse stands, I might as well describe it to you, uh, a red horse stands on its hind legs, all around nature is wild and tame in a technical ecstasy. Uh, the red horse stares out at us with a soft and charming eye, but there's no doubt that our attention is being directed to the nipples and especially the weighted penis. This is sexuality seen as a form of savage yet noble splendour. Uh, also, you can't really see, but the, the, the nipples, and the navel and the penis also sort of form a human face, uh, which um, I think perhaps reminds us that man is just another animal with sexual urges. This is one of the This, perhaps from surprisingly, is called Penis Dog. Uh, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know the date that this was made, but here again, sexual energy is shown to be uh, an animalistic urge. Uh, also, these objects here uh, in this corner could be uh, the 
some testicles at the bottom. These could be like penis plants, uh, which uh, <laughs> reminds us that uh, sexual urges are part of nature. Or they could be sort of penis aliens, uh, which um, uh, suggest that, that sexual energy is inherently of the worldly and as such in conflict with the sort of cosy domestic construct of, of the house there uh, at the top. Next one. Um, this is virtually unrecognisable from what it's <laughs> uh, This is a, a, an untitled coloured pencil drawing from 88. Uh, male genitals in the middle form part of this creature. It's a sort of alien being, uh, part meat, part vegetable, an entity from the world of sci-fi, really. Uh, it's got a, a strange eye staring out from the middle. And this is a perverse being, but uh, nevertheless an erotic one. This is portrait of a sexual demon, uh, again from 88, ink and coloured pencil on paper. The demon is depicted as a grotesque uh, clown, its own penis, partially erect, is dripping and somehow a little bit apologetic, uh, I think. Uh, meanwhile, nearby, two disembodied hands uh, are masturbating a, a, a double-headed penis and there's gobs of sperm uh, sort of shooting in, in uh, both directions. To me, this feels like a depiction of someone who recognises the, the beck and call of their rapacious uh, sexual appetites, perhaps suggesting that uh, John was at the mercy of the sexual demon. And yet, elsewhere, uh, balance treats sexuality uh, and desire in a far more playful and humorous manner. This one is called Dinosaur Dick. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is Happy Penis. <laughs> and that's uh, Nazi not Enders. <laughs> next one. And uh, this is the delightfully titled Mythologically Strange Female Sees Burning Vision of Pork Sword. <laughs> so uh, these drawings aren't so much erotic as they are camp. That's to say, they exhibit some of, of camp's key attributes, uh, namely uh, ostentatious display, exaggeration, and impertinence. Uh, and again, this could easily be construed as a balance, tempting to throw us off the scent uh, by infusing his work with crude and camp elements. Is he saying, don't pay too much attention to this, it's all a bit silly? Yet, clearly, camp, crudity, and section in the endo are far from incompatible with high art. In fact, these very elements play a part in some of the most revolutionary of art. The work of Marcel Duchamp is heavily weighted towards camp, crudery and sexual innuendo. Be it uh, the deployment of the urinal as an artwork, the reproduction of the Mona Lisa bearing the coded message, she has a hot ass, or his final work, which is the Eton Donné, in Balance's writings and lyrics, including the Coil Manifesto, is the description of Coil as decadent and symmetrical. That sounds like a phrase rich with Blakey and Portent. It is, in fact, a quote from a French and Saunders comedy sketch, <laughs> wherein Dawn French, in the role of an art critic, says, I like anything, as long as it's decadent and symmetrical. <laughs> Anybody know that? Is that new information? Again, this, this doesn't quite fit with the popular image of balance as a wide-eyed, surrealistic uh, visionary, but camp playfulness very much is a key element of both Cole's music and Balance's visual art. Uh, with this in mind, I toyed with giving this talk a far less uh, reverent uh, title. Uh, options included Experimental Bent, which looks quite good, uh, John Balance, The Magic Marker, uh, but for the longest time, my favourite title was Cork Sword and Sorcery. <laughs> so this is a quite sort of manic, detailed piece. This is done in felt tip. And you'll notice that a lot of the works are done in Magic Marker, Biro, felt tip and so on, tools which are very rarely used uh, by fine artists. 
And then perhaps balance was reaching for whatever tool was available in the moment of inspiration. Uh, if so, we can read this and then rise into the challenge of taking these really unsophisticated tools and creating something of visual significance. Or we can flip it round and say this is yet another example of him, perhaps, perhaps unconsciously, uh, distancing his artworks from serious consideration. By using biros and felt tips, he's saying, this isn't fine art, these are just domestic daubs. But whatever the reason for Balanza's use of these tools, there's one definite knock-on effect. Unlike graphite or pigment, biros and magic markers cannot be removed or reworked. What lands on the page stays on the page. There's space for elaboration, but not for erasure. So this shows Balance's commitment to the uh, automatic process. As I mentioned earlier, the majority of Balance's works were created via automatic drawing or painting. Uh, and this is a technique which we readily associate with uh, surrealism. It was pioneered by the French surrealist artist André Masson. It's a way of removing uh, rational control and allowing the image uh, to flow directly from the psyche onto the page, what surrealist leader André Breton referred to as pure psychic automatism. Now, Balance was a huge fan of several surrealist artists and had a number of their works in his personal collection. And it's easy to view his own work through the prism of surrealism. And yet, Balance, while clearly plugging into the energy of surrealism and, and uh, celebrating its privileging of chance and accident, uh, he appears to be doing it largely on his own terms. Um, many contemporary artists who engage with surrealist tropes end up, I think, mining themes which were exhausted decades ago. I'm sure we're all familiar uh, with contemporary art which uses some of the key signifiers of surrealistic imagery, bomb hats, eyeballs, uh, people dressed in the fashions of the 20s and 30s, ladders leading up to clouds, um, sort of subdolinian landscapes and so on. There's somebody who clearly thought, oh yeah, Dali uh, did some uh, swans uh, with elephants for heads, I'll do elephants with, uh, with tubers for heads. And it's all a bit lame, frankly. Uh, artists like this uh, make the mistake of thinking that surrealism is a distinct visual style uh, rather than an attitude or state of mind. So to me, stuff like this ends up being a sort of visual karaoke. It's a sort of attitude rendition of a classic form, if you like. The thing is, if you look at the first and second wave of surrealist artists, uh, Salvador Dali, Max Ernst, uh, Leon Feeney, Hans Bellman, and so on, um, there's very little crossover in terms of imagery. And that's because each of the artists followed their own uh, distinctive sessions. And it's sort of quite ludicrous to think that you could pick up another artist's obsessions and use them and expect that your own work would resonate with the same power. It's a bit like sort of uh, putting on a head chef's uh, hat and assuming that then you'll be able to make a gourmet meal. It's just not possible. <laughs> so, um, Balance himself, though, was not above utilising stylistic devices of other artists. And one clear example of this is the artist Brian Geising. Very, just about this, looking, looking like a saint. Uh, Geising was one of the key figures of the, of the Beat generation. Unlike fellow Beach, Jack Kerouac, William S. Burroughs, and Alan Ginsberg, um, Geising never really made the crossover into proper public consciousness in terms of, of, of the wider consciousness of the public. But he's easily got a claim to have uh, an equal, if not greater, impact than someone like Kerouac. Geising wrote novels, he was an accomplished poet who pioneered the form of a permutation poem. He also created, or if you prefer, discovered the cut-up technique, a form of word-based collage, I'm sure most of you are very familiar with it, uh, whereby pre-existing texts are spliced together. Geising showed it to his uh, friend and former lover, William S. Burroughs, who saw the possibilities and went on to uh, utilise it in a, in a series of novels, including Soft Machine and Never Express. But clearly the cut-up has ramifications far beyond the world of literature, into the other arts, into magic, and so on. 
Uh, Geisen also created the Dream Machine. Um, it's a stroboscopic device which pulsates the frequency, which alters the brain's electric oscillations, thereby causing hallucinations. You, you, your eyes close, as soon as you open your eyes, the hallucinations are gone and you're back to normal. Uh, Geisen was interested in cultural disobedience. He believed that artist is, the artist is the eternal outsider, and he was openly queer at a time when such honesty could lead to quite serious consequences. So, for all these reasons, uh, Geisen it was an obvious touchstone for both Balans and Christofferson. But uh, the element of this oeuvre which concerns us closely here is his uh, work as a visual artist. He was a highly accomplished painter of collages and exhibited internationally. When he was quite young, he'd studied uh, Japanese and Arabic, and his work had long felt the influence of calligraphy. But Geising claimed that his true fascination with uh, the calligraphic form came in 1956 in Morocco. Uh, Geising had opened a restaurant in Tangier by the name uh, The Thousand and One Nights. Yeah, he was obviously quite unpopular with the locals uh, because one day uh, he, um, he found a small pouch lodged behind one of the restaurant walls and upon opening the, couch, he re uh, the uh, pouch he realised it was a curse. Inside was an amulet, seeds, pebbles, seven shards from a broken mirror, small balls of hair matted with blood, a cut-out silhouette of Geising himself and crucially a square of paper with a spell written on it in lines both right to left and up and down, thus forming a grid. And the grid of words read, Make Master Brahim leave this house as smoke leaves the fire, never to return. And sure enough, a little while later, the restaurant folded and Geising was out with just the shirt on his back. But the grid of words made an indelible impression on his artistic sensibilities. And from then on, the grid and calligraphy became integral. In fact, they became the mainstay of pretty much all Geising's visual artworks. It's there, believe me, it's somewhere. The fact he was inspired by a curse, and a successful one at that, is deeply significant. It shows that for Geising, art and magic would come to occupy the same space. Similarly, he refused to distinguish between word and image. Now, Geising described the grid as the bright jungle gym of mathematics, an exercise for controlling matter and knowing space. And interestingly, what we see in Geising's work is the tension between the formal certainty of the grid and the swirling chaos which he weaves around it. Geising seems to see the grid not as a limiting form, but something to struggle against or overcome. And there's obvious echoes in this, I think, uh, with Balance's statement, we made the studio sacred, then we blasphemed. That is, putting in place an area of restriction, only to then react against it. So, um, Balance's work uh, quite often uh, shows echoes of, of Geising's. He combines calligraphic forms with grid formations. Now, although these works are looser and have a more lyrical tone than Geising's, they also appear to be spells or incantations. Balance's handwriting asserts his individuality. The repetition of the words affirms their power, whilst the grid symbolically locks in their meaning. Yet, if these are uh, spells or incantations, then we cannot know that their purpose or intention was. These are private spells, and that's a major part of their power. In some of the, uh, the calligraphic pieces, the words are clear. Uh, in others, the text has been more densely woven together. Words are seen not just in terms of meaning, but in terms of shape and pattern. Um, the latter become deliberately entangled, densely woven together, and uh, the individual meanings are subsumed uh, by magical text. This is a coloured pencil drawing uh, from 1988, it's called Prayer. 
both its title and its form tell us this is an image with spiritual or magical intent. Here we can see balances operating away from the more direct influence of Guy Think. Uh, with its restricted colour palette, it's got a real delicacy of fluidity and grace, and I think this is possibly the best of his, uh, of his calligraphic works. Well, one of the most significant aspects of prayer, I think, is that here balance is dispensed with recognisable language altogether. The pencil marks are as much like musical notation as they are like text. Here balance is evoking magic to the language that is purely his own. Um, <laughs> right. This is a this is a watercolour felt tip piece from about 94 entitled Noise or Signal Disabled Landscape with Language. Here is the title suggests a balance is taking language into a direct engagement with the natural world. The language becomes a component of the, of the landscape itself. This is all text, I mean, you can't see but these are all words really minutely written out. Um, so the language becomes a component of the landscape, but it's interesting balance described this as a disabled landscape. I think what he's suggesting is that language itself can actually act as a barrier to understanding, that by introducing language into the landscape, we're disabling nature and preventing it from being understood on its own terms. The label is not the thing, the description is not the thing, this is not the pipe dream. Now, the other artist who inevitably arises when we talk about uh, the work of John Balance is, of course, the British artist and occultist Austin Osmond Spare. Uh, oh, sorry, can we look at the, the one after this first, actually? Um, yeah, this is a, this is a, um, a pastel uh, drawing from 1957. Um, Spare was born in, in 1886. He occupies quite a unique position in the history of British art. Balance and Christopherson were both avid collectors of Spare. This is one of the pieces that was in, in their, uh, their vast collection. It's called Tree of Knowledge, and it incorporates a, a portrait of Joyce Bernard. Um, now, much modern-day discussion of Spare centres on his outsider status, focused on the archetypical image of the starving, eccentric artist in, in the garret, uh, whilst his reputation as an occult magician obviously pushes him further to the margins of society. But we should remember that Spare has started out on a very conventional and conservative path. He was a son of a policeman, uh, he studied art at the Royal College of Art, he was an official war artist, and initially he exhibited at uh, fashionable London galleries. <coughs> Um, but he would go on to develop a highly personalised and detailed system of magical beliefs. He also employed automatic drawing, a technique he developed contemporaneously to the Surrealists, but completely separately to them. And uh, he believed that often his hand was being guided by spirits or elemental forces. And it wasn't him doing the drawing, it was some other force. But can we go back to the, to the previous one? Uh, this is um, a portrait of Steffi Graf. Um, Steffi Graf? Steffi Graf. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so uh, this is a side reel portrait, and uh, this is also from Balance and Christopherson's collection. Spare uh, pioneered side realism, which is a visual experimentation with a logarithmic form of anamorphic projection, which leads to what you might call these slightly slanted images. Um, now I asked Balance's close friend and fellow coal member Ossian Brown how many artworks uh, of Austin Osman Spare, Balance and Christopherson owned. He told me about 90 individual pieces, plus an entire bound uh, notebook which contained all the original drawings for Spare's Book of Ugly Ecstasy. So it's fairly safe to say that the imagery of Spare was a constant feature in the home life of, of balance. So obviously it's quite tempting, knowing that, to start looking for traces of Spare's style in the work of balance. But in truth, I think there's very little to be found. Uh, Spare was a painter of great technical skill and he was uh, a draftsman par excellence, whilst balance's approach is best described as intuitive or perhaps primitivist. Yet yeah, we can see threads of Spare's cosmology of interests in Balance's work, in his depiction of worlds populated by demons and elementals, in his embracing of the grotesque, 
in the belief that sometimes the artist's hand is guided by spirits and, of course, in his employment of automatic drawing. Now, although the visual influence of Spare may be slight, Balance's relationship with Spare went well beyond the imagistic. In an interview with 14 Times magazine in 2001, Balance said, I have a very intimate relationship with Spare. He's my mentor. I communicate with him through his pictures and often ask his advice as an ancestor. A lot of his beliefs were shamanic and to do with ancestor worship. I don't have a very close connection with my ancestors, my real family, other than my mother's parents. So I talk to Spare for advice. I think he still exists in his art and in the ether. He's around as a helper. He then jokingly goes on to say, that sounds a bit flaky, doesn't it? Maybe I should catch it in cyber terms. <laughs> so it's certainly easy to imagine that Balance would be communing with the spare pictures in his collection, such as this one, and seeking answers, be they questions to personal issues or perhaps creative decisions. Now, Balance and Christopherson had a lifelong interest in magic, the arcane and the occult, uh, but they were far from purists. Their interests included paganism, discordianism, thelema, and so on. But rather than embrace one true faith or one specific doctrine, they cherry-picked the items, the beliefs, uh, the themes that were particularly inspiring to them personally. And sometimes they just simply take the spirit of an idea or a practice. And of course, art itself can be seen as an alchemical act, the transmutation of base materials such as pigment, clay, paper and canvas, into items of visual, spiritual and monetary worth. Yet for Balance, there was no question of him showing his artwork to people or selling them. It was a private affair, as indeed most magical acts are. Now, there are numerous possible reasons for Balance not pushing his artworks out into the public arena, the most obvious being he believed they were of no real intrinsic artistic worth. I asked Ossian Brown about Balance's opinion of his own work. He said, he loved painting and drawing, but he wasn't greatly confident, and he was quite dismissive of his pictures technically. In a letter to Val, uh, Balance described his own work as rubbish. So whether he chose to imbue the works with magical intent or not, it's possibly viewed them simply as the overflow of an ever-active creative mind. And of course, we can't underestimate what it must have been like living and working with an artist of the scope and stature of Peter Christofferson. Aside from being a musician, Christofferson was a photographer, graphic designer, film, video and commercial director. He was one of three partners in the world-famous hypnosis design team, and as such was responsible for some of the most iconic album themes of the 70s and 80s. Uh, so next one, that's Pink Floyd's uh, Wish we're here. Um, so he worked for, they did uh, sleep with Led Zeppelin, Peter Gabriel, Pink Floyd, uh, and a lot of these images became ubiquitous and, uh, and iconic. And you've got to remember that whilst, you know, we're the sort of people who go to art galleries, actually a very small proportion of, the, of society will ever step foot in an art gallery. But um, album cover artwork, particularly in the year of the 12-inch sleeve, uh, is potentially seen by millions of people. So Peter's work was, was, was really out there and really visible. And it's easy to see, can we look at that one? It's easy to see in the shadow, see that actually looks fine. It's a bit like that. It's easy to see that in the shadow of a sort of very technically uh, adept and sophisticated work of Christopherson, uh, that Balance sitting home on tour, filling notebooks with images in ballpoint and marker pen, could easily begin to dismiss his own work as mere sketches and doodles of little consequence or purpose. Now, I might seem to be overstating uh, Balance's reluctance to have his visual artworks put out there for consideration, but consider this. Have a look at another one. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. I think it's a really beautiful, really sort of perfectly realised piece of work. Um, 
But just consider like that. By most band standards, Carl's discography is enormous. Scores of albums, EPs, live recordings, CDRs, uh, scores of, of, of things released under alternative names and so on. And yet, with the exception of a handful of, of uh, limited release CDRs, not one of them has uh, artwork on the cover by, by Balance, which I think is a real shame because several of these images would I think make superb uh, sleeve artwork. Look at the next one. Beautiful. And the next one. So I think, um, in conclusion, I'd just like to say that although it's obvious that Balance himself placed very little value on, on his artwork, the fact that he was continually producing visuals with no thought for anything other than experimenting and, finding, and, and exploring different modes of expression may well be his art's greatest strength, because in the end, the unguarded nature of this work's creation means that these images provide a direct line to the unconscious of a truly visionary artist. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a talk by Graham Duff, presented at Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult in May of 2016. His talk, Sublime Fragments, The Art of John Balance, can also be found in collected papers from this conference, The Fenris Wolf, Volume 9, edited by myself and Carl Abrahamson. You may find the collected volume at our publisher, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. For more, please visit Graham Duff's website, gramduff.co.uk. You can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net. The podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Or the conference website, psychartcult.org. That's P-S-Y-C-H-A-R-T-C-U-L-T dot org. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Published by Trapart Books, 2019, and also available as an ebook through iBooks and Kindle. For more information, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. And now, message 23. Memories, Pandragine, with other individuals, come into, to, and explores the dilemma all when we're 
of the species, existential fears, the meaning, transitional mind, for serving as a political. Governors are dropping shows between head that was. Would it be? Who led this? Ourselves think this. As below, so above. I want eating out, baptizing, associated with a bonfire blazing. However, ripping molds and a body self oppressed or a scab. Out wild, only child, worked over in the mind. Situations were primary, creating by breaking. For in all only, play, rest, pleasure, memories, tangerine with other individuals, come into, to, and explore the dilemma all when we're Existential fears, the meaning, transitional mind, for serving as a political. Governors are dropping shows between head that was. Would it be? Who led this? Show. 